electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends? I'm just trying to make a little money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Here we go. Part of earnings season, and the question that should be on your mind is simple. Do you keep riding the magnificent seven, or do you try to find the next big thing? After a day where the Dow gained 184 points, once again, crazy. S&P climbed 0.4%, and the Nasdaq advanced only 0.19%. It's really what's on my mind, probably on yours. Think about it. Amazon's rallied 53% this year. Apple, 48. Meta, 142. Microsoft, 43. Tesla, 116. NVIDIA, 205. And all the alphabet is lagged behind with a 38% gain. Not too shabby. Do you stick with them or do you try to find the next tech giant? Do you go for Adobe? Up 56%, but only at $239 billion, about a third the size of the smallest mega cap tech name. Or the similar size Salesforce, up 70%. Or perhaps the most logical, ServiceNow, up 49%, but only with a juicy $118 billion valuation, maybe going higher. Or do you go under $100 billion? How about Palo Alto, cybersecurity, up 74%. $74 billion? Mm. Shopify, 91%, $85 billion. How about a MongoDB, up an astounding 109%, but a Piker, $29 billion? Or heaven forbid, do you leave tech entirely? and buy red-hot home builders. Lenar, a 41%, but with only a $36 billion market cap. DR Horton, a 46%, $44 billion market cap. Or how about Toll Brothers high-end homes, up 58%, but only $9 billion market cap. Winners all. I know this sounds crazy, but you need to know there are many funds who are incapable of even thinking about other kinds of stocks, let alone these hot ones. That's all they care about. See, they're not all daunted by all those percentage gains. They mean absolutely nothing to the hot funds. They care very little, say, about drug stocks. Eli Lilly, which may have the single biggest drug ever, the weight loss and diabetes control Monjaro, plus a possible Alzheimer's delayer, has only gained 26% for the year. Think about how less that is versus all those techs I just named. Caterpillar, the company I think is most levered to the trillions of dollars in infrastructure this company is turning out. Perhaps the biggest story in this country, perhaps the biggest story in American spending history, has only rallied a pathetic 8% for the year. And it's been hated all the way. It's hard to argue that PepsiCo's had anything but the best performance of any consumer packaged goods company. It's up a paltry 6%. With travel and leisure exploding for years now, the big beneficiaries, Boeing and American Express, they're up just 13 and 14% for the year, respectively, and American Express has just been crushed in the last two days. We interviewed Chevron CEO Mike Worth with, uh, this morning. He was on Squawk on the Street. He's arguably the most important oil and gas executive of the day, as he was just given a, a couple extra years of his job. Chevron stock is down 10%, even with the price of crude back to the high 70s. It's simply remarkable, isn't it? The disparity, the dichotomy, it's palpable. 
hey, I want so much to tell you that this is the time to get into Bausch Health and ne'er-do-well stock that the club owns because it finally seems right if it wins a bunch of court cases. Hey, listen, the stock's up 52%, better than most drug games. Or how about the banks? The banks. The banks. J.P. Morgan, biggest and best, up 18% for the year. Resurgent Wells Fargo, 12%. I think there's an answer to all these, and I know it because of the work we do for the CMC Investing Club, Jeff Marks and I. You don't buy anything, anything at all, until the stock market gives you the chance, the fat pitch you need to catch these winners, but at your price, at the right moment. Now, I know a lot of people can't restrain themselves. They want to buy ahead of the quarter. I have to tell you, I'm saying it right here, right now. That's a sucker's game these days. So many stocks have moved up in this market that it might be hard for them to maintain their momentum, even if the most amazing sales earnings forecasts are given you on the conference call. The only upside surprise in the entire group of stocks I mentioned that had any staying power that didn't involve churning and a retreat before it advanced more was NVIDIA which raised its quarterly revenue forecast by $4 billion and was just an unstoppable force. There are so many companies that report good numbers only to see their stocks meander. They go down, they go up, they churn, and then they move. It's absurd to try to bet on the next NVIDIA-sized upside surprise. There are 499 stocks in the S&P that failed to do what NVIDIA did. Instead, we have far more nuanced cases, and Oracle or J&J, which just had very large moves, but they were still attainable because the stocks waffled before they really took off. Or in Adobe, there's a good one. It soared, but then it pulled all the way back and then went below where it was before it advanced. How about Netflix and Tesla? Right now, they sold off. They represent classic good opportunities, just like Adobe. So what should you do? What's the best way to figure out what you're looking for among all the choices I've just mentioned? I think this is a matter of keeping it simple, stupid, the KISS method. And the KISS method says that if there are so few cases where you have an off-to-the-races kind of rally, an NVIDIA rally, then why bother to try to figure out if Apple's a buy before earnings? Or if Amazon might well tell you that Amazon Web Services has stopped slowing in growth and done a U-turn, or might do a U-turn in the fourth quarter. Hey, you want to go into Google Hot? Only to find out that YouTube has signed up very few subscribers, the NFL Sunday ticket, or that Google Cloud has lost share. Who knows? So there's a simple way, a two-step way to measure, to figure out what to do with every one of these stories. And I got it. And I'm giving it to you. First step, you have to ask, are we overbought going into the quarter with the stock itself part of the overbought equation? If yes, guess what? You got to forget about it. You missed the move. End of story. You weren't bold enough. You were too bearish. Maybe you were stuck with Mike Wilson, the highly regarded Morgan Stanley equity analyst who conceded today, as I knew he would, when he said we were wrong in staying too pessimistic. Quotes on we were wrong. See, the reason doesn't matter. Not at all. All that matters is that it's hard for stocks to rally when we're really overbought. And right now we're very overbought. More than five on the oscillator I follow, which means we're pretty darn vulnerable and the mega cap tech names all fit that profile. So I'm saying is, undiscriminating as it is, you failed to catch the upside if you're not in, and you either have to move on or wait for a better moment. No sin in waiting. And that's what I'm urging members of the investing club who were not in when we bought a lot of these stocks. You know, it's too, stocks, it's too late. So what you want to do with almost every one of these winning stocks I just mentioned is wait for a swoon after the report. Or more important, wait for a market-wide sell-off that brings the whole group down. Like something we might get at 247 on Wednesday after the, uh, uh, something that Jay Powell says in an Aaron press conference. 
After so many days where we've been up, I know it's hard to just wait for the pitch. It's so much easier to swing away. But you've got to ask yourself, swing away at what? There isn't even a pitch worth hitting unless it's NVIDIA two months ago. And that's come and gone. With these rules in mind, understand that all of the winners I've just mentioned are off limits until you get a market-wide swoon. Or at the very least, one of them reports a good quarter and the stock sells off anyway. Because for some reason, Wall Street gets it wrong, like Tesla, like Netflix. Very few concepts are as difficult to accept as the one that says, you missed it. We never want to believe we missed anything. Unless you're willing to settle for these sectors that have very little gain so far, the markets have not, so to speak, you must accept that the buying opportunity is long over. Here is your bottom line. You got to wait. And if these don't ever come in, then that's all she wrote. Let's go to Andrew in California. Andrew. Hey, Jim. Big fan of your show. I own Exponential Fitness, ticker XTOF. Um, last month, there was a short report that came out with allegations against the CEO and concerns that the franchisees are losing money. I know you've highlighted the stock in the past, and what I really want to know is, can Exponential Fitness still give me exponential gains? All right, here's what I'm going to tell you, because I asked some very specific question about whether any of the franchises had failed. I got a very specific answer, which was no. I then subsequently find out that some people say that that answer was wrong. So here's what we do. When we have a situation where the press says that somebody is wrong, but the person says he's right, I invite that person on to tell me why I should believe him and not the press. So, CEO, founder, Anthony Geisler, hope to see you soon. Madison in Texas, Madison. Hi, Jim. We hold a large position in DocuSign and wanted to ask your thoughts. Why is DocuSign's valuation so low if their overall adoption is as high as it is? Do you think it's the company's fault for not charging enough, or is the barrier to entry so low that others are able to enter the marketplace? Madison, you are asking the most important question I've found, and exactly what, it, what I felt when I uh, interviewed the CEO of DocuSign was, were they late? What happened? I came away thinking, you know what? They're going to pull it off. It's just that what happened is, is that the previous CEO, uh, I think he fell on his laurels. I think he had it all locked up. And then a company like Adobe came in and said, you don't have it locked up. But I like DocuSign, and I think that you're going to be okay. Not great, because there's so many better stocks, but okay. Listen, we never want to believe we missed anything. I know, you know, I don't feel it, no second guess, but it's true. Unless you're willing to settle for, this, for the markets have nots, and I just showed you why you shouldn't, you must accept that at this point, the buying opportunity is long over unless we get a swoop. Oh, man, Matty, tonight, we've been laser-focused on all things stablecoin for years. Now, former CFTC chair Tim Mastin is out with a really important op-ed on the subject that I think is mandatory reading when it comes to the whole crypto- cryptocurrency court, and I know you care about that group. I'm breaking down the latest with the man himself. And as the comeback of the regional banks here to say, I'm digging into the recent reports in the group sharing where I think this volatile corner of the market could be headed. And last week, the Justice Department and the FTC released a draft update of their latest merger guidelines. What does it matter for you and your stocks? I'm discussing with Assistant Attorney General Jonathan Cantor. You do not want to miss this, so stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. 
also a fact. Smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash madmoney. Just go to Indeed.com slash madmoney right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash madmoney. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Right now, we are at an incredibly pivotal moment when it comes to cryptocurrency regulation. Unfortunately, Congress doesn't seem to want to step up to the plate with actual legislation, so we have to depend on the Securities and Exchange Commission to establish some sort of a framework through enforcement actions, which is risky because those can always be challenged in court, and they're also incredibly cumbersome. Just a couple of weeks ago, we got a federal court ruling in a long-standing case that the SEC had brought against Ripple Labs. That's a company behind a cryptocurrency. It's very popular. It's called XRP. And at best, it was a mixed verdict. But the stock market largely viewed it as a defeat for the SEC because cryptocurrency was in part not ruled a security and therefore was not within the SEC's purview. So we're still a long way from having a durable set of rules that can protect crypto investors. As Tim Massey, the former chairman of the Commodities Future Trading Commission, pointed out in a really smart op-ed piece last week, if we don't take the lead on this, this stuff, if we don't take the lead regulate it, well, other countries will set the standard for us. And that's especially true for stable coins. They're the most dangerous link between the crypto economy and the real economy. So in the wake of the Ripple decision, figure out what the hell is going on with this stable coin. Let's check back in with our go-to crypto regulation expert, Tim Masson, former CFTC chair, current research fellow at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. Mr. Masson, welcome back to Mid Money. Jim, it's great to be back with you. Tim, I'm worried. I think our country should be the leader in pretty much everything finance. It is very clear in the last few months that we have ceded this, uh, I'd say, supremacy to other countries that may not even understand what they're doing, and yet we're all going to be stuck with the rules, including American investors. How do we stop this? Well, I don't think we're that far behind, at least not yet. Uh, And I think, you know, the U.S., if it were to just exercise a little bit more leadership here, I think other countries would follow. And there's really two different issues here. One is the general regulation of crypto, which you referred to, and this recent court case is problematic. In some ways, it was a victory for the SEC, but in other ways, it wasn't. And that's why I still believe 
we can't get to a good regulatory framework through enforcement alone. And uh, I've advocated that, you know, the SEC and the CFTC should get together and just create some standards for these platforms. And Congress should direct them to do that. With well, stable coins, it's a little bit different. OK, please, because um, this is really important. Yeah. So, you know, as you said, stable coins are kind of a potential connector between the crypto world and the real world. Now, a stable coin is simply a crypto token that is supposed to be backed uh, by real assets. And, and most of them that we talk about are backed by dollars. So one token equals one dollar. They're only used for crypto trading today. They might have other applications. But they exist, and my concern is we're not addressing the risks. I think our regulators uh, often take the view that, well, it's better just to try to keep them out of the regulatory perimeter. Um, but I don't think that really works. And, you know, I think the competition from stablecoins could be useful, again, if we address the risks, and they are significant. Well, Tim, I've got to tell you, I, I remember during the bad days of 2008, where people broke the buck. We thought that there were securities backing up our dollar in our, in our money markets. And then we kind of cleared that up, and it was great. I know millions of investors, and, and just through my pan, you know, panoply of people I deal with, who if they knew that there was something similar, a money fund that, that was crypto, they would feel so much more comfortable. Why isn't a Fidelity or a JP Morgan, which isn't really favoring this stuff, but, or even the SEC and Treasury just saying, here's what we want. Because then I could tell everybody, listen, it could be part of your 401k. It should be in your IRA. Well, I would take a slightly different approach, which is I've kind of viewed stable coins as a payment mechanism that wouldn't pay any interest. So I don't think people should regard them as, you know, an investment vehicle. The question is, would they be useful in payments? Now, you know, most of us think of the payment system. We think, well, that seems to be fine, right? I've got right. my credit cards. I've got mobile banking. Uh, what do we need anything else for? The truth is the U.S. system is slower and more expensive than what other countries have developed all over the world. And you see that particularly with cross-border payments. And it also that burden falls heavily on the on lower income people because they don't have credit cards always or, you know, their checks don't get cleared by the bank quickly. So could stable coins help? Possibly. Now, I say that, you know, I'm not convinced yet because it's not clear they're faster. Uh, there are some real issues in terms of making them safe. But I'd rather see us develop a regulatory framework uh, than simply say, well, let's hope they go away because other countries are doing that. We do have people in Congress on both sides of the aisles that want to see this done. Uh, but, you know, whether they can reach agreement uh, is another issue. Well, OK, see, this is what I find to be most disconcerting. It, there's a broad-based coalition that we do something here. Uh, but the only thing that's really come forward is the SEC, I think, correctly bring enforcement actions because there's a lot of chicanery. But we don't yeah. have Treasury making any sort of rules that make me feel good. And uh, right. all the while, I've got a guy. Uh, today, I see there's a fellow, Sam Altman. We know him from ChatGPT. Well, he's got, he's got a, a world coin. And I'm saying to myself, I don't know, smart guy, world coin, but it's not going to be allowed here. And I am completely mystified about how we can get to a situation where the rest of the world seems to have a little to get a little bit more together and our people are being disadvantaged. Well, that's the thing. You know, technology marches forward and regulators are always trying to catch up with it. 
But I think in this case, you can't just say, well, you know, let's try to keep it out of the box, keep it, uh, you know, so that it's not connected to the traditional financial system, because we do have other countries, Europe, the UK, Singapore, uh, the UAE, you know, creating these frameworks, you could have more dollar-based stablecoins issued from abroad. Now, that might not happen, but it could. And you have states that are in a position to license them. So that's why I think we need something at the federal level. Treasury has called for legislation, um, but I, I wish they would make it more of a priority. And I've advocated with two other law professors, I've advocated a way that regulators could do this on their existing authority. They wouldn't need legislation. So we're not that far, maybe. I mean, maybe we just need a champion. Yeah. Maybe someone in the government champions. And then we can become the leader. And what I've got to tell you, let me tell you, Tim, younger people, this is what they care about. When you ask them about stocks, they say, we want crypto. But they're afraid. We have to eliminate the, this fear factor. Yours, your methods would eliminate that. Yeah. And, you know, look, I'm sympathetic to a lot of people in government saying we don't really we're not convinced of the use case here. We don't really see what the value is in the real world. But, you know, sometimes it takes time to really discover that. One thing we have seen, uh, even from the limited use of stablecoins today, is it's caused banks to actually look at their own systems and think about the ways they might improve. And I've had that conversation with a lot of bankers. And they would say, well, we don't really like stablecoins, but we are looking at, you know, maybe we can have permissioned distributed ledgers. Maybe we can do other ways of tokenization. So again, I think competition is good. And, you know, I would I just wish that we would try to create a framework to best address the risks, even if we can't perfectly address all well, those risks. I, taken, I still think that would be better. I think you're going to do it. You're the leading voice in this. You're a voice of great <laughs> reason. I am not kidding, Tim. It's not just because I've known you for like 40 years. You are, the, you are the leader in this. And I think people are going to listen to you. There'll be banks to pick up on what you say. And we are going to get the head of this thing. And we're going to be the safest place in the world when it, come, when it comes to, to stable coins. But we're not there yet. I want to thank Timothy Masson, the former CFTC chair, research fellow, Harvard Kennedy School, the man who's doing more to make this stuff safe and I think affordable to Americans. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, Jim. All right, we're going to get to the bottom of this. I'm not stopping with this issue. Too many young people care passionately. We're going to fix it. May have money's back after the break. Coming up, the regional banks are rising from the ashes of this spring's mini crisis. So, can the group keep on gaining from here? Kramer's on the case next. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge, and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. 
It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. So far this earnings season, we've gotten a huge surprise from the once-hated regional banks. Remember, this whole group collapsed in the spring when Silicon Valley Bank, Silvergate, and Signature all went under in March, and they never came back. As Wall Street kept worrying that the next big bank failure would be right around the corner. Fears that proved correct when First Republic failed in May. Even when the mini-banking crisis subsided, people figured that the regional banks wouldn't be able to make much money going forward thanks to what's known as compressed net interest margins, weak loan activity, deposits fleeing to the major banks, and, of course, the constantly looming recession. By the end of June, the S&P Regional Bank ETF was still down substantially from its initial lows in March. I certainly didn't hear anyone saying these stocks look like good buys going into the earnings season. But man, oh man, the regional bank ETF is now up 16.5% for the month of July, including a 7.5% gain last week alone. Largely because so many of the companies managed to report excellent numbers. That said, before we get to earnings, the other big driver of the regional bank rally has to do with recession fears. We're just a lot less worried about a slowdown than we were a couple of months ago. Same reason the industrials and the material stocks and the transports have been able to rally. Plus, there hasn't been another high-profile bank failure since First Republic was put in a receivership and sold to J.P. Morgan more than two months ago, which is encouraging, especially because I would have thought that there were a half dozen that were about to go under if you read the press clippings. The earnings have also been huge positives. Last week, for instance, Western Alliance and PacWest, two of the hardest-hit stocks during the mini-crisis, sell, 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 sell. saw their stocks rally in a astounding 24 and 19 percent respectively. Practically everybody thought they'd be the next to fail. Now they were trading like takeover stocks. Last Tuesday, Western Alliance reported quarters basically in line. The more important, they had 7.3 percent deposit growth, not outflow, which is the opposite of what you see during a bank run. Management said deposit inflows have continued this month, another 3.2 billion of additional deposits in July alone. That was enough to send Western Alliance's stock screaming, and it took fellow traveler Pac West with it. Wouldn't you have loved to have those gains? I wouldn't be surprised if we hear something similar from Pac West when reports tomorrow night. Although, given how much has already run, I don't know, the bar's now much higher. A couple other banks that were under close scrutiny managed to deliver good enough quarters, like Citizens Financial and, and Bank OZK. That's formerly Bank of the Ozarks. Wall Street was somewhat worried about these two, thanks to their commercial real estate exposure. We know how troublesome that can be. Both banks made some common comments about the commercial loan portfolios, allowing Citizens Financial to rally 12% last week, while OZK gained 2.6%. We also got results from many of the larger regional banks, the super regionals, as they're known. And the truth is, these were a mixed bag. Back in March, I recommended M&T Bank on weakness because it's an extremely well-run outfit that didn't make mistakes with its bond portfolio. By the way, that's what hurt some of the banks that failed. Sure enough, M&T just reported a massive earnings beat with deposits up 2% sequentially during the quarter. People thought it might be down. Stock rallied 5% last week because the business is good. I don't even think that one's done yet. Some of the regionals reported solid results but talked down their outlook, uh, outlooks for the coming quarter or the rest of the year. That was the case with a couple of the largest operators like Midwestern Powerhouse, U.S. Bancorp, and Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania-based PNC Financial. U.S. Bancorp had inline sales and earnings but gave you a lower-than-expected forecast for the third quarter, and they cut the full-year outlook. 
PNC delivered a five cent earnings beat, but also offered tepid outlook for the back of half of the year. You know what's interesting though? Both stocks were able to rally anyway. U.S. Bank gained nearly, it's USB now, nearly 9% last week while PNC was up close to 7%. That's just like what I said at the top of the show. When you don't have to guess the quarter, you can actually wait. Now, we saw similar action from the Cleveland, Ohio Bank, Key Corp, which missed during expectations and lowered most of its full-year guidance. But still, the stock jumped 12.5%. It was down too much. What does this all say about all these things? It tells us that U.S. Bancorp, PNC, and Key were all trading like they're headed for truly calamitous numbers, which is why nobody seemed to be worried that they guided for incrementally worse numbers. It didn't matter. It's in the stocks. Too many many investors said, hey, what a relief. People figured we were in a slow-rolling regional bank apocalypse. In reality, the numbers are just going to be a little worse. In some cases, a little better. I also want to flag Huntington Bank shares. They've been on a bunch of times. Columbia's bank, Columbus, Ohio-based bank that I recommend a few times as a port in the storm because of its great management team, conservative business, and strong dividend yield. Huntington reported Friday morning and had an inline result, but deposits grew 8% in the quarter. That's a huge positive. A lot of people were saying they were going to flee. On the other hand, management lowered their full-year net interest income growth forecast to account for the current interest rate environment. Ultimately, the stock closed down a little on Friday, even though it still finished the week up f- almost 5%. Oh, I still like it here. Hey, by the way, that 5.1% yield, it doesn't hurt. Now, the only legitimately disappointing result I saw this week came from a bank that it kind of surprised me, frankly. Truist Financial, the Southeastern Regional Bank formed by the merger of BB&T and SunTrust a few years ago. Two banks I really like. Truist missed earnings expectations by $0.08 cents off a dollar basis, guided down for the second straight quarter. Truist was one of the few regional bank stocks that couldn't climb higher last week, though it only was down 0.2%. Boy, by the overall strength of the group, maybe because of the ETF, can't recommend it. Damn, darn, I really wanted to. Finally, we're on the subject of regional banks. I want to take a few seconds to pat myself on the back for recommending Charles Schwab, which I stuck my neck out to support in, in uh, late March, and then again in May. Even though Schwab's an online brokerage house, it does got a bank within it. And somehow Wall Street became convinced that the bond portfolio at Schwab's internal bank could wreck the entire company. I told you that was insane. There was zero chance of a bank run at Schwab. Even if the internal bank vanished, the core business would be fine. Sure enough, Schwab turned in a heck of a quarter last Tuesday, saying that the cash sorting, its term for deposits leaving for places where they can earn higher interest rates, has mostly run its course. While the broker's part of the business, well, you know, the main part was thriving. I think it's even going to get better. Schwab stock jumped more than 12% Tuesday. It's now up 29% from where it was trading when I doubled down on it in late May. Yes. But here's the bottom line. We've now heard from a critical mass of the regional banks, including a number of the names that investors were most worried about in the spring. And while I won't go so far as to say that the results were phenomenal, they've certainly been good enough, given the ridiculously low expectations by the group. By the way, many of the regional bank stocks are still ultra cheap, while several others offer fantastic dividend yields. They've suddenly become a lot more attractive now that Wall Street's gravest fears seem to be subsiding. And Schwab? Ah, it's as great as it was before it was slagged by so many fear mongers who turned out to be dead wrong. Let's go to Jeff in New Jersey. Jeff. What's up? First time caller here. Just want to say what a remarkable show you have. I find, ah, myself experiencing, <laughs> find myself experiencing losses in my investment with American Express, despite the company's impressive performance in both top and bottom line earnings. Is it time to sever ties? 
You know what? I spent a lot of time talking with Steve Squeery. He's the CEO. And the expectations for this thing were so darn high. I don't know if they could ever, no bank could have possibly done, no credit card probably could have possibly done what they wanted. People now like MasterCard and Visa. Those are the two that people like. I like MasterCard more than American Express, candidly, mostly because I just kind of felt that the expectations are still too high for American Express and has to come down a little more before it finds a bottom, even though I like it very much. Dale in Florida, Dale. Hey, Jim, long-time listener, first-time caller. Excellent. Uh, my new fiancé, Connie, and I would like to uh, thank you for being such a saint for us retail investors. Oh, my God, thank you. It's, it's what am I am all about. i got to tell you, I've been with some institutional investors in the last couple of weeks. I'm not for them. They're not for me. What's up? <laughs> all right, I've been following this uh, ticker uh, from $13, and it, it's up to $53. Um, but I feel it may be at its peak. Uh, just want to get your. Um, I do have a long position and call options on this. Let me get your take on Upstart. Okay, Upstart is an absolute short squeeze of tremendous proportions. There were some people betting against this thing, but I think you're right. The short squeeze can only go so far, as we saw with GameStop, as we saw at AMC. And I think that you ought to skedaddle and be happy and take the game and go buy yourself a cashmere sweater, as my late mom used to say. I won't go so far as to say that the regional bank's results were phenomenal, but they've certainly been good enough given the ridiculously low expectations for this group. Much more made money, including my exclusive with Assistant Attorney General Jonathan Canner, trying to get a sense of where M&A stands in our country because it is vital for the stock market, going straight to the source. And all eyes are on the Fed this week, but why do I think that could be a mistake if you're trying to make money in this tape? I'll give you my very controversial take by my own admission, and all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. Last week, the Justice Department and the FTC jointly released a draft update of their latest merger guidelines. And they represent what some would say are anti-business, but others would say is a return to what antitrust was all about when it began in this country. This stuff is incredibly important for all investors. It is vital we understand what's going on right now. That's why tonight I'm thrilled to have the absolute best person to walk us through the new guidelines. His name is Jonathan Kanner. He's the U.S. Assistant Attorney General for the Antitrust Division. Mr. Kanner, welcome to Man Money. Oh, thrilled to be here, Jim. Well, I've got to tell you something, John. You have been, I think, someone who is readily understood, but seems to create a level of confusion because Wall Street doesn't understand what the laws are. I want to quote something from a speech that you gave at the University of Chicago uh, April 21st of last year. It says, I am pleased to report that the patient is alive and well. And here we're talking about antitrust. And the prognosis is good. Antitrust enforcement is on the mend, cared for and supported by a broad bipartisan coalition devoted to its rehabilitation and full recovery. What do you mean by that? I thought we've had antitrust for years in this country. <laughs> Certainly we have had antitrust. And Jim, let me just say I'm thrilled to be here with you today, and I'm glad we're talking about this. So we have had antitrust in our country. Uh, the merger laws have existed since 1914. Um, but what we're seeing now is that markets have evolved, and they've evolved in transformative ways over the last 20 or 30 years, even the last 15 years. Think about um, your experiences you know, with rotors on phones and uh, and stopping to ask for directions and when documents were scored, stored in cabinets rather than clouds. What I'm talking about is how markets have transformed. And when market realities change, it's really important that we keep pace with those changes. Well, the confusion I think a lot of people have is, is that there's a, a doctrine that has grown up 
that really has nothing to do with all the things you just said. And yet the original Sherman Antitrust Act seems to actually address today's methods more than the doctrine that we've kind of evolved into. Because that doctrine was about pro-competition. And what's occurred is incredibly anti-competitive. Can you explain how that, how that developed? Yeah, so I think what, what we have is in 1914, Congress enacted the Clayton Act, which they since amended in the 50s. And the purpose of the Clayton Act is to protect competition and protect against monopolies. It's right there in the statute. And the goal is to prevent mergers or acquisitions that do that. And in order to effectively apply the law, we have to start saying, okay, how does competition in this market pre present itself? And does the merger threaten to substantially lessen that competition? And so I think over the years, we've done uh, at times varied, various different um, um, uh, degrees of enforcement. But the most important thing is that we get it right, not just with respect to the application of the law, but with respect to how we understand the functioning of markets. And I think one of the things that I keep coming back to is that today's markets function in a very different way than they did in, uh, decades ago. And so it's important that we actually start with the question of understanding how competition presents itself in this market today. Well, why is, has this element, which has <clears throat> actually been with us for years, viewed as being anti-business by so many on Wall Street? Because what's good for business, whether it's public or private, is competition. And yet somehow you're viewed as being anti-business. Yeah. So I think for, for the most important thing for us, Jim, one is that we enforce the law consistent with the facts in the law. So we apply the law the way Congress wrote it, uh, which was to protect competition. But I will say a healthy, resilient and competitive economy works for everyone. It works for businesses. Businesses want the opportunity to compete. They want the opportunity to compete based on the merits of their inventions and their innovations uh, and their pricing and their customer service. That's what we want, too. We don't want to pick winners and losers. We simply want to give businesses the opportunity. And I will say that more often than not, we hear from other businesses that they want antitrust enforcement. They want the opportunity to compete. They op want the opportunity to buy inputs at, at low prices. They want better um, uh, opportunity to offer better customer service. Businesses are healthy and they want to compete. We just want to give them that opportunity. Okay, well, and how do you think about the effect of antitrust enforcement on the incentives of entrepreneurs and small companies to innovate when one of the biggest incentives can be acquisition, particularly when the stock market is closed to young innovations? So I think that the beauty of our country and our system is that new businesses can come up with great ideas, they can start them anywhere in the country, uh, and they can bring those dreams to reality. In essence, that is the American dream. And that's what competition in a competitive economy pursues. It pursues the opportunity to realize that American dream by building your own business, by being an entrepreneur. But that's not possible if markets are closed. It's not possible if there is no ability to enter a market and compete and build a business from the ground up. And so um, we want to protect the competitive process so that businesses can realize those innovations. I am concerned that there are different nuances that do hurt things. You talk about dominant position, not just position. Things that are highly concentrated, we don't know what those definitions are, and yet we know that we want to make it so things are pro-competitive. How do we know when you're reaching too far? And let me ask you point blank. 
How many of the deals that the government approved in the last decade you would still approve? Yeah, so it's hard for me to go back and, and comment on prior deals, which I won't do, but I can say the following, which is that the courts have weighed in on where those thresholds lie. So the word dominant is a word that shows up in court case after court case. And highly concentrated markets are something that the Supreme Court has set out. And so in issuing these guidelines, what we've done is we went, we looked at the law, we understood where the Supreme Court and appellate courts have set those levels, and then we explain that to the public, that that is what we're going to use when we investigate, so that there is predictability and that there is um, an opportunity for the public, including businesses who might be merging, to understand what the framework looks like. Well, I got to tell you, as someone who, just studied, who studied this 40 years ago, I think your views are a lot clearer than what we currently have. And I thank you for coming on. We're going to do some more work with you, Jonathan Kanner, Assistant Attorney General for Antitrust and DOJ, perhaps the most important person when it comes right now to Antitrust, and perhaps even some would say where the stock market is going to go. Bad money's back in the break. Coming up, Kramer takes your calls, and the sky is the limit. It's a fast fire lightning round. Next. And then the lightning round's over. Are you ready, Ski Daddy? Time for the lightning round. Crimson Monday Starbucks. David in Texas. David. Booyah, Jim. Booyah, David. I watch money, Mad Money every day, and thank you thank for you. all you do. Thank you, Dave. Boy, how can I help? Uh, the company I'm calling about recently got FDA approval for their C-disc drug. The company recently was named to the Time 100 Most Influential Companies in the World. Analysts rated a buy. Why is the stock of Series Therapeutics, MCRB, not going up so Because far? the stock is losing money hand over fist. And while I did introduce it and wrote an article about it several times when it came public, I have to admit that I am mystified by why it's not doing better, despite the fact that it has something interesting. And the answer is I do not think the company is all that well run. Let's go to Jim in Arizona. Jim. Hey, Jim. I got a question. I got at and I've been hanging on to it. I don't know if I should add to it or just walk away from it with all walk this. Walk away from it. Uh, Companies as poorly managed as any company I've ever seen in my lifetime. Let's go to Reagan in Florida. Reagan. Hey, Jim. Um, I wanted to ask you about Centris Energy and what you think of them going forward, especially given uh, what's going on with the Inflation Reduction Act and the talk about I'm not a believer in uranium. I'm not a believer in uranium because I still think that the stench of Three Mile Island and even what happened in, in, uh, with Southern is going to make it so anything's going to change. I do not want to be associated with uranium because I just don't think it has any staying power, given the fact that we're all scared of nuclear power, even though we shouldn't be. Let's go to Andrew in New Jersey. Andrew. Jim, congratulations on your success, but go a little easier on David Faber in the morning. I feel bad for him. Nah, he's, he's, he's annoying to me. I like hey, his mother, Phil. She's terrific. I, mean, I don't know what's with him. And the dog is his. It's like, I like all listen. dogs, but that dog is like, I don't know. Go ahead. Before anyone knew about Waze or Android or Auto, there was a company called Navtech. They licensed all the mapping data out to anyone that wanted to put it in their software. Tremendous company, very profitable, good investment in the 2000s. I think right now, with the sports betting growth that's going on, the sports data provider, specifically Genius Sports, is uniquely positioned. I've this thing, and I'm only really recommending DraftKings because I want companies that make money now. When that company turns a profit, I'm willing to look at it, even if it might be higher than it is. Losing too much money. How about Nick in New Jersey? Nick! Nick, thanks for having me on. I am calling about Adobe Corporation, Advanced Lithium Battery Technology, 
T.J. Rogers likes it. Mark Kohlholz likes it. U.S. Army contracts. What's not to like here? Well, I mean, how about the fact it's losing money hand over fist? I mean, you see, one of these things I've been trying to emphasize to people is that there's so many companies that are making so much money, including Magnificent Seven. I do not need to reach lower and decide to be with companies that are losing money because that's not good. Let's go to Pat and Washington. Pat. Is Pat speaking to me? I can't hear. Hello? Pat, it's Jim. What's up? Oh, this is Jim. Booyah. Booyah, Pat. I listen to your program all the time. I like your opinion and idea on Verizon. I'm very tortured by Verizon because I think it's one of those companies that's very good product but is just not doing well enough and has no growth. That's why I like T-Mobile, even though it doesn't have any yield. Because yield has not protected people from a decline in the value of Verizon. Let's go to Dan in Pennsylvania. Dan. Hey, Jim. Big fan. Thanks for my second time calling, so thanks for having me on. Okay. Uh, my question is about ticker symbol SLB. What a great company. Uh, SLB is terrific. The Chapel Trust owns uh, Halliburton. That's also been very good. But there's no flies on SLB. It's really well run, and I would recommend the stock. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up, is all the focus on the Federal Reserve overdone? Kramer sharing his thoughts on all the obsession around the central bank's every move. Next. Why did our obsession with the Fed fail us this year? at least from the perspective of money management. That's the central issue I see coming up ahead of the Fed meeting Wednesday. We're in still one moment where all eyes are on the Fed. Legitimate focus, yet the wrong one if you're trying to make money in the stock market, as we are. First, it made sense to focus on the Fed in previous years, in part because of its unpredictability. Unpredictability fuels uncertainty, and uncertainty fuels sell. Sell, sell, sell. So we have plenty of reasons to have wall-to-wall coverage. But this time turned out to be very different. Other than a handful of rookie errors at the very beginning of his tenure, Chairman Jay Powell has been pretty flawless, extremely predictable. So the Fed obsession became a misdirection play. Even don't fight the Fed, which is normally good advice, only worked for the bulk of last year. Since the fall, though, you've made a lot of money if you fought the Fed by owning stocks that don't normally work at this point in the business cycle. Second, running with that point, this year we've had a cornucopia of winning stocks that make little sense historically. The industrials began the big run when the Fed took out the bazooka last fall. Normally, when the Fed keeps tightening, the industrials get crushed. It didn't work this time because the companies were levered not just to the broader economy, but to the rapid adoption of energy-saving devices. I'm shocked by how corporate America was so adept at avoiding the typical Fed-induced slowdown this time around. Third, techs caught fire thanks to the combination of ChatGPT and the industry getting religion on cost cuts. Apple and NVIDIA were the exceptions. Apple had innate demand from brand-new countries as well as an excellent service revenue. NVIDIA had the holy grail of the right chips for generative AI at the right time. Of course, CEO Jensen Wong had given viewers endless warnings about what was coming, but it, it finally came to fruition with chat functionality in late fall and early winter, and the stock hasn't looked back since. Fourth, I've always held that housing, while only 10% of the economy, punches well above its weight. So the thinking was that higher rates would crush home builders, and that would crush the broader economy. It's always been the case. But the undersupply, chronic undersupply of housing, and the lack of a big lift in mortgage rates really did reward those who said this time is different. Fifth, the mini-banking crisis didn't turn into something bigger thanks to the adept work of the Fed and the Treasury Department. It just turned out to be, as I said earlier, one more buying opportunity. 
And six, nobody visibly substantially went under, say Bed Bath & Beyond, despite 11 rate hikes. Corporate balance sheets were just too strong. Uh, even commercial real estate REITs have stayed alive. All this has left the Fed watchers in real bad shape this year because they followed the conventional wisdom. And conventional wisdom kept them out of some huge gains, kept you out of some huge gains. Now, despite that bill of particulars, I expect nothing to change this week. Already we're playing the parlor game of one and done or one and two or one and pause. That's good in one way. For those who are patient and currently have some cash, you're going to get to purchase stocks into the spurious moment of future selling, something I expect given how overbought the market is. That said, it'll be hard because the people who want to talk about the Fed are so adept at making sure that everything else is treated as superfluous, including making money. Of course, if your job is to help people to try to make money, you have to accept that the media won't change its ways. I won't either. I smell a buying opportunity based on the Fed-obsessed gas bags who rather dive in the Guanas Canal than dirty their hands researching individual stocks, to which I have two words. Thank you. Yes, I'm thankful these ill-advised strategies exist because they create buying opportunity after buying opportunity for those of us who are willing to do the homework about individual stocks. My instincts say more lay ahead, maybe even this very week. Like I said, there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise you to find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. Last call starts now. All opinions expressed by Jim Cramer on this podcast are solely Cramer's opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, or their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by Cramer on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Jim Cramer as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. Cramer's opinions are based upon information he considers reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Mad Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash disclaimer. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.